Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapunzel. As a kid, I loved trains. They weren't very difficult to find. We had train tracks that ran through our town on their way to New York, but those were on the outskirts of town, and we didn't have a stop in my town. But still, whenever I was near them, I loved when a train would come past. And on occasion, my family would get stopped at the train crossing, and my sister and mom would roll their eyes. Everybody'd get real upset, but I was really excited. I would wave at the train conductor, try to get him to wave back. Never did. It would take a long time before I actually got to ride a train, and I love riding trains to this day. But my first experience in, I guess, what would be train culture outside of TV and movies was when my family had to pick someone up at Penn Station in Newark, New Jersey. Now we'd pulled up and we were a little early, and my one sister said, "Well, I'll go in and pick them up, meet them when the train comes in." My mom said, "Okay, we'll stay here near the curb and we'll stay in the car." And I begged to go in with my sister. My mom was hesitant, but my sister said, oh, "I'll watch him. Don't worry." And she let me go in. The train station was beautiful outside, and when I got in, at first I was really taken with it. Very pretty. But at the time, the train station was filled with what my family called weirdos. I guess the normal people who hang around train stations. For me. This was a whole new experience, and it was way too much for me to bear. When I pictured a train station, I pictured the train station in the Gary Coleman film *On the Right Track*, or maybe even train stations from older films from the 30s and 40s. This blew my mind. It was chaotic. People were yelling. At one point, police officers tackled this guy to the ground. My sister held my hand. We picked up our guest, got in the car, and went home. Over the years, I would get back to that train station as an adult, and would go to a lot of the train stations in the area while commuting into New York City. But that first experience with the train station has stuck with me since day one, and it really could have colored my view on train travel in a negative way. But because of the vision of train travel in films and television, and the romanticism of it in pop culture in general, I could not be deterred. I would bury my memories of that experience deep down inside, and they would only come up on occasion when something similar would happen. I saw police catch a pickpocket at the train station in New York City back in the 90s, and I instantly remembered back to my youth watching those police tackle the guy, and it was very vivid. I'm glad that I was able to overcome it because I love trains, and I'm thankful to all the pop cultural influences that have helped preserve my love of trains and. One of the big ones, oddly enough, was a film that was on HBO back in the 1980s a lot. It was the Gary Coleman film *On the Right Track*, and that is the subject of today's show. I know people have not been clamoring for this episode, but I hope you enjoy it anyway. We're going to talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. We'll talk about the plot of the film. We'll talk about its reception, and we'll throw in some surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
On the Right Track was a 1981 comedy starring Gary Coleman. It was directed by Lee Phillips and produced by Ronald Jacobs and released by 20th Century Fox. So Gary Coleman is a young actor, and in 1974, he's appearing in commercials, and people are noticing it. He's got a lot of charisma. Norman Lear, who produced amazing TV shows, probably best known for All in the Family, The Jeffersons, shows like that, saw him and thought he was amazing and started casting him in shows that he produced. People couldn't get enough of this kid. And in 1978, he landed his own sitcom, Different Strokes. From there, his career just skyrocketed even more, and he created a production company, Zephyr Productions, that I guess he and his management, which were his parents, hoped would create vehicles for Gary to star in. On the Right Track was the first movie that would come out of Zephyr. It was filmed in 1980 in Chicago. Now the movie was supposed to be set in New York, and the working title originally was New York Loves Lester. Then, filming location was switched to Chicago, and the working title was changed to A Guy Could Get Killed Out There, a reference to the main character, Lester's dislike of leaving Union Station, where he lived, and we'll talk a little bit about the plot later. The film would come to be filmed in Chicago, primarily at Union Station, and was filmed throughout 1980 for a 1981 release. Zephyr Productions would produce other Gary Coleman properties, including TV things like The Kid from Left Field, Scout's Honor, The Kid with the Broken Halo, The Kid with the 200 IQ, which is really fun, and The Fantastic World of DC Collins, as well as his movie work like On the Right Track and Jimmy the Kid. This film was directed by Lee Phillips. Phillips was an American actor turned director, started on Broadway, and landed a pretty big role in the film adaptation of Peyton Place, opposite Lana Turner. He would switch to directing in the 50s, so way back then, but still did some interesting TV work acting. For example, he appeared in The Fugitive and The Twilight Zone. Sadly, he passed away in 1990. Today's show is brought to you by a local bus company. Train station too hectic? Why not get on the bus? So a little bit about the plot of On the Right Track. It's a silly idea, but pretty simple. Gary Coleman is a homeless shoeshine boy. His name is Lester, and he lives in Union Station in Chicago. He's small, as Gary Coleman was, and lives in a locker, actually a couple of lockers that he gets himself into and stores his stuff. Chief amongst his caretakers is Jill, who wants to be a singer and runs the local arcade. So this film does have some classic video games in it. Those arcade scenes are worth pausing. You'll see a couple of real gems in there. Lester is brilliant. He also has a gift. He can pick winning horses while looking up at the paper while shining shoes. They just come to him. The social service guy, Frank, who comes to pick him up and bring him to a shelter, discovers this, and all sorts of shenanigans ensue as Frank falls in love with Jill, maybe starts actually wanting to be around Lester, but maybe it's just for the horses and we can't tell. Meanwhile, gangsters who are taking the bets get involved, and the city finds out about 
Lester and Norman Fell, who plays the mayor, comes down and starts dealing with Lester. And Lester says to him, I have ideas for fixing the city, kind of based on illegal gambling. Everything goes downhill as Lester gets pulled in multiple directions and he loses his ability to pick the horses. So he gets abandoned by everybody who loves him. In the end, what will happen? Will Frank and Jill get together? Will they come back for him? I don't want to spoil anything since that's the big ending, but you'll have to see for yourself. It is a very sweet film. A little silly, but pretty easy to follow. And watching it a couple of times again recently, I'm struck with some of the adult themes in a film that I would think is made for kids. Maybe that's partially why I enjoyed it kind of as much as I did as a kid as an adult. Greetings and salutations, retro listeners. This is Rob Flack O'Hara with another installment of Talking Tech. In the late 70s and early 1980s, arcades and arcade machines were everywhere. You could find arcade machines in restaurants, bowling alleys, convenience stores, grocery stores, and apparently Chicago's Union Station, which is where On the Right Track was filmed. Gary Coleman's character Lester is befriended in the film by a woman named Jill, who happens to work in Union Station's arcade, which is conveniently named Arcade. Several of the film's key scenes take place in the arcade, and viewers with a sharp eye should be able to identify several machines in the background of those shots. One of the easiest games to spot is Space Invaders, with its unique artwork standing out in the background of several scenes. Other machines are a bit more difficult to identify. In the front left-hand side of the arcade, you can see a large white cabinet. That's Clay Champ, released by Allied Leisure Industries in 1979. On the right-hand side of the arcade, you can see Flash, a pinball table released by Williams, also in 1979. In fact, the arcade is home to around a dozen pinball tables. Viewers should easily be able to identify the Playboy and Galaxy pinball machines in several shots, and a chess game between Lester and Jill takes place on top of a safari-themed stern pinball table named Big Game. The first time we meet Lisa in the movie, she's working on a stern free-fall pinball machine. If you look closely, she's holding a soldering gun in one hand, while in the background, the lights on the machine continue to flash. Working on electronics while they are plugged in is not advisable. My favorite machine in the film appears to be one that doesn't exist in real life. Early in the movie, Jill challenges Lester to a game of trivia on a machine titled Test Your Knowledge. I couldn't find any games named Test Your Knowledge in the online arcade database. There's no side art on the machine, and the marquee, instead of being printed on glass or plexiglass, appears to be a simple sticker. But the most telling giveaway can be heard rather than seen. When Lisa drops a quarter into the machine, you can clearly hear the sound of Galaxian being played. Test Your Knowledge, indeed. This has been Rob Flack O'Hara with another installment of Talking Tech. Thanks, Flack. So a little bit about the cast of this film. Gary Coleman played Lester. Gary Wayne Coleman was born in 1968, sadly passed away in 2010. An amazing child star probably best known as Arnold Jackson on Different Strokes. He also appeared on other shows, playing that very same character. Shows like Silver Spoons and The Facts of Life. After his child star days were over, he had a really difficult time getting work and had a lot of financial problems. It's a real shame. Very talented kid. Lisa Eilbacher played Jill, started out as a child actor, appeared on My Three Sons and Gunsmoke. Unlike Gary Coleman, she made the transition into adult roles and would appear on TV shows throughout the 80s and 90s. If you're a Twilight Zone 1985 fan, she appeared in the episode Night Song. 
Michael Lembeck played Frank, probably best known for his work playing Captain Cool of Captain Cool and the Kongs on the Croft Super Show. He also played Julie Cooper's husband in One Day at a Time. Maureen Stapleton played the bag lady Mary. Maureen Stapleton was a tremendous talent in both theater and movies, won multiple Tonys. She was also in some pretty big movies, including Bye Bye Birdie, Reds, Airport, and the Woody Allen film Interiors. Some of the movies I really liked her in when I was young, Cocoon, and of course Cocoon the Return, as well as Johnny Dangerously. One of the more impressive names in this film was Norman Fell, Mr. Roper from Three's Company, and of course the spin-off The Ropers. Fell plays the mayor, does a great job. Even though he doesn't mug the camera in this, he does get to sort of stare at reporters and other things, so he's doing a lot of his Mr. Roper stuff. It's great. He adds a lot to anything he's in, and he adds a lot to this film. Herb Edelman played Sam, owns the pizza parlor where Lester gets some food every day. Herb Edelman, probably best known as the ex-husband of Dorothy's Bornack in Golden Girls. He was also on the TV show St. Elsewhere. Bill Russell, probably one of the greatest basketball players who ever lived, had a small role in this film. And this might be his biggest role in a movie, although he did do TV work as well. He plays Robert. There's a lot of smaller parts in the film, but a young star who pretty much got her start here as well, she'd been working some other stuff at the time, was Jamie Gertz who was also sort of discovered by Norman Lear and was in an episode of Different Strokes, you know, the one with Andrew Dice Clay. I don't know if you've seen Different Strokes. It's a good episode. She also had a recurring role on The Facts of Life early on. Now with a little bit more about one of these actors is Vic Sage. Hi, friends. Vic Sage here with Why Should I Know This Person? And this time we are taking a look at On the Right Track co-star Norman Fell. Norman Noah Feld was born on March 24, 1924 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. After attending Central High School of Philadelphia, Norman served as a tail gunner in the United States Air Force during the Second World War. Upon completing his military service, he enrolled at Temple University where he graduated with a bachelor's degree in drama. Fell would later hone his craft at the actor's studio. Norman would get his first acting gig on the 1954 Goodyear Playhouse TV episode, The Huntress. He would continue to appear in bit parts for TV up until 1957's theatrical feature, The Violators. At this time, he was being billed as Norman Feld. He wouldn't change that until the 1959 film Porkchop Hill, where he appeared beside Gregory Peck and Rip Torn. 1960 was a big year for Norman, as he appeared in Inherit the Wind with Spencer Tracy, Frederick March, and Gene Kelly. The Rat Race with Tony Curtis, Debbie Reynolds, and Don Rickles. And Ocean's Eleven alongside Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford. He was later quoted about working on that particular film and said, I like Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and Frank Sinatra. They were great. Joey Bishop and Peter Lawford were creeps. Bishop kept looking at me funny when I changed. Don't get me started on Lawford. Now bear in mind that Norman had a odd sense of humor. It was believed that he had a long and bitter feud with actor Jack Klugman, a feud that lasted over 40 years. They later revealed that the feud was a hoax, and the two friends had grown up together in the Philadelphia area. Norman Feld would make his mark mostly in TV, appearing in Peter Gunn, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Dr. Kildare, The Fugitive, Bewitched, I Spy, Ironside, Love American Style, The Partridge Family. 
before he landed his Emmy-nominated role in 1976's Rich Man Poor Man as Nick Nolte's character's boxing trainer. That same year, Norman secured the 56-episode role of Stanley Roper in the hit ABC TV series Three's Company. In 1979, Norman would continue to play that character of Stanley Roper in the spin-off TV series The Ropers. Norman would continue to appear in TV and movies up until his death by cancer in 1998. His last acting role was voice work for the Fox animated series Life with Louie. This has been Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person, signing off until next time. When the film was released in March of 1981, it got mixed reviews, although Siskel and Ebert seemed to like it. It's hard to find full stats from that time, but it seemed to open in only 36 theaters. That said, it would eventually go on to make about $13 million. That's not so bad. Still, I don't think it was considered a big hit. After these messages, we'll be right back. It's Kenner's Finger Pops Popper. I shoot him up ready to play with Finger Pops. Pop go to Finger Pops. Pop go to Finger Pops. The Finger Pops Popper. A barrel of fun. It comes with a holster and six Finger Pops. Pop go to Finger Pops. The Finger Pops Popper. A barrel of fun. Yippee! The Finger Pops Popper comes with holster and six Finger Pops. Finger Pops also sold separately from Kenner. I'm Gary Coleman, and I've got a little quiz for you. When you give to the National Kidney Foundation, do you fight all forms of kidney disease? Check. Do you support research? Check. Do you support public and professional education? Check. And does our National Kidney Foundation need our help? Check. And please, make it a big one. That is the answer. I should do that. Yeah. And now, back to the show. The soundtrack for On the Right Track was never released, or at least I have not been able to find a copy of it, although it does have some great scoring, and that was provided by Arthur B. Rubinstein. If you're a film soundtrack buff, you might remember him from his work on the John Badham films, Blue Thunder, and of course War Games. In the 1980s, this film was released on VHS. I never had to buy it because it had been on HBO and I had taped it off there and watched it through that copy. A couple of years ago, I was able to pick up a copy for two bucks on VHS. Right now, VHS copies are very pricey and I do not see a DVD release anywhere on the horizon. But if you do want to watch the film, it is on YouTube in about 12 parts. A small price to pay to see the film. Not great that you have to sit there and watch it on your computer, but if you have YouTube that you can hook up to your television at home, it is a slightly better experience. We'll return after these messages. Hey, Shakespeare, would you write a TV sitcom for a Klondike bar? Methinks not. For that chocolatey-coated ice cream loaded big and thick, no room for sin. Mm. And that precocious punk. <laughs> what you talking about, Willie? What you For us, our new Klondike Chalk Burger. Vanilla ice cream, a chocolate cookie, peanuts, and caramel. Taxi! Over 19 million times a year, people take off with us to cities all across America. 
Maybe it's because we can take them to more places than American, TWA, United, and Delta combined. Or because our fleet has some of the newest, most advanced equipment in the world. Or maybe they just like taking off without leaving the ground. And now, back to our show. I don't understand why this film, or even all the works of Gary Coleman, are not more celebrated. I remember watching the works of Shirley Temple being celebrated, and Shirley Temple is a great child actor, but Gary Coleman is right up there with her. In fact, while I'm not sure how much of a dancer Gary was, I could say that personality-wise, he had a lot more going on for him than a lot of other child actors of his time. He could dominate a scene, he could exude confidence, and his diminutive size could make him seem fragile and endangered. So I'm not sure why we don't celebrate the career of Gary Coleman the way we celebrate other child actors. Maybe it was because of all the TV work he did and we saw so much of that. And we can get access to different strokes on many retro TV channels. I think that's great, but I'm also a little sad because stuff he did outside of different strokes is very good. And if you have the opportunity to sit down and watch any of these works, his TV movies or his films, do. I think you'll discover that he was a very talented actor, I think up there with any great child star, and it is a real shame that he wasn't able to make the transition to adult star, because if he could act the way he did at that age and own a scene, I would like to think that that charisma doesn't go away, and that there could have been more for Gary Coleman. And his inability to find work and his passing at a young age is our loss. The good news is, because of the internet, a lot of his work is accessible, so why not do yourself a favor and rediscover Gary Coleman? Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist.com and twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Vic Sage. If you have feedback for Vic, you can email him at vicsage at retroist.com. Thanks to Rob Flack O'Hara for another great talking tech. You can find Rob and all his work at robohara.com. There you'll find his podcast. He participates in quite a few. All of them are great and worth checking out. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. So there was going to be a new Little Rascals, and Stymie was going to play Gary. I mean, Gary was... Oh. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.